Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Uh, before we get started uh, in John chapter 4, uh, we have a little bit of uh, family business uh, to attend to. Uh, real quickly, a little bit about how we uh, do things here at Gospel Community Church, kind of how we run uh, our church. Uh, we believe uh, at this church that Jesus is the senior pastor. Um, he is the head honcho, the dude in charge. Uh, that is Jesus. He is uh, the one leading the church when it comes to what are we going to do, where are we going to go, what's happening with the church. Uh, we, we seek Jesus and say, hey, wh what do you want us to do? Um, as far as how the rest of our church government goes, directly under Jesus is what we believe is called an elder board or a group of men uh, who come together to decide the forward direction of the church. They're responsible for the teaching and preaching of the word. They're responsible for the oversight. That's kind of the daily care uh, of the church and how it runs. They're also responsible for shepherding, meaning uh, pastors or elders, which is a synonymous word, um, are to care for the sheep. And so that's what elders do. Underneath the elders then is another group of people called deacons. Um, so what we have at our church is a lengthy process uh, that we put people through uh, because we place such high regard on those offices, on the office of elder and on the office of deacon. We place very, very high regard on those offices. Um, and so the deacon process looks like this. Um, it, it is a very long process to where um, your doctrine and your life is inspected while you're serving in the church uh, after an amount of time passes and there's some uh, required reading and there's all sorts of other things that go into it. Uh, but at the end of that process, what we do with those people who complete it um, and whom the elders agree that, yeah, this person is, is a deacon and we should officially install them, is we bring them up on the stage uh, and say, hey, the church approves of this person. Um, if you know something about them that we need to know, please come tell us. Uh, so, you know, if, if you saw them punch an old lady at Walmart or you saw them doing something inappropriate, uh, maybe you've done business with them in the past and hasn't, got, whatever. Uh, so that, that's kind of the final stage of our process is to present these uh, potential deacon candidates to you um, and, and give you an opportunity to come to the elders and say, yeah, I saw this or, or, or whatever. Um, and then the following week, um, if all goes well, we lay hands on them and officially install them into that position. Uh, so without further ado, I would like to invite to the stage Charles and Casey Bird, if they had to come up. Um, Charles and Casey uh, have been with us from the very beginning. Uh, they went through the deacon process together as husband and wife um, and just kind of uh, took it piece by piece, step by step. They, they serve our church in a huge, huge way. Um, and I am honored to call them friends, um, honored to, to call them, uh, to, to walk alongside you guys in ministry. So, um, what we're going to do, again, is give a, uh, a, a week time period. Uh, if you have a, a question that, that you have about them or, or something, a concern, uh, please come to me personally. Come to me directly. Um, I do not take anonymous emails, okay, or anonymous notes. If, if you have something, a concern with them, uh, you, you come and, and talk to me directly. Um, barring all of that, uh, next week we will lay hands on them. Uh, and officially install them. So, uh, would you please give them one more round of applause? Love you guys. Thank you so much. 
So, we've been traveling through Jonah. If you would, go ahead and turn to chapter 4 if you're not already there. A lot going on this week. Uh, There is a a plant, a worm, and a wind. Uh, Very strange happenings. Uh, If you have not been traveling with us through this book, uh, let me just catch you up. It's really interesting how um, this story is written, how it works. It, It almost works like acts in a play or scenes in a movie um, as you travel through. You can kind of break up this book in that way. And so act one or scene one, we find ourselves in a great storm. So Jonah has been told to go to Nineveh, a place where he doesn't want to go, um, and preach uh, to them, telling them the message that God has given. But he doesn't do that. He goes in the exact opposite direction um, and heads down and gets on a boat uh, to try to flee to Tarshish, to go the exact opposite direction. Um, And so what happens is because of that, God hurls, the Bible says, a great storm onto this ship. And where is Jonah? He is asleep in the bottom, right? Doesn't care at all that he's endangering the lives um, of these other men. Uh, And so what happens is they they go down there, they wake him up, they find out that the reason God has hurled this great storm at them is because of Jonah's disobedience. They end up throwing him overboard, right? And, And so now we've moved into scene two or act two. We were in a great storm. Now we're in a great fish. When it looks like Jonah is just about to die, Right? The, the waves are crashing in on his head. Uh, he is drowning in the sea. God appoints a great fish uh, to come swallow up Jonah. And again, what we've seen throughout this whole story is that it's actually not about a dude named Jonah, nor is it about a giant fish. But the book of Jonah is actually about a relentless God who pursues sinners. He pursues us. He saves us. He loves us. I mean, he, he throws the storm at him because because he loves him, because he's chasing him, because he's trying to get him awake to open up his eyes to his disobedience. And there he is drowning in the sea, which is his own fault, by the way, and God could have rightly let the dude drown because he deserved it. Instead, God appoints a great fish to come swallow him up. And so scene two, act two, is in the belly of the fish. Chapter two is where he is pleading and praying with the Lord, where he gives his song or his prayer of thanksgiving with this great resounding note that salvation is of the Lord, right? But something really interesting happens in scene two, act two. Uh, He kind of throws this little tag in there where, where he says, you know, what I have vowed to the Lord, I will pay because I'm not like those silly pagans, right? So there's still like this little bit of self-righteousness in the heart of Jonah to where he's kind of repentant, but not really repentant. So the fish vomits him up uh, on the shore. So now we've been in a great storm, in a great fish. Now we're on to being in a great city. Uh, And so he goes through and he finally gets there, preaches the message that God told him to preach. And guess what happens? 120,000 people get saved. I mean, it is revival on a massive scale. God sweeps through there, changes people's hearts, changes people's minds. They get saved. They woke up that morning. Pagans go to bed, lovers of God. I mean, it's just an incredible, amazing thing. And we saw that this city was incredibly advanced, incredibly fortified. These people were incredibly cruel, Me, I mean, just terrible people. But God saves them, right? And, and it's awesome. Um, And so that's kind of scene three, or act three is in a great city. And then we get to the close of the book, right? 
Everybody gets saved. Jonah repents. Uh, there's a giant party, and, and there's punch, and everybody's happy. The end. The book ends, right? <laughs> no, like that, that seemed like, right? That's where the book should have ended, right? Jonah says, well, pff, I really blew it. I messed up. You know, God had to throw the, the storm at me, and he had to send the fish. And so I got here. I preached. Everybody gets saved. And so Jonah sets up shop there, right? He starts preaching and counseling and plants a church, you know, downtown Nineveh. You know, they have to go multi-site, multi-campus because 120,000 people, you know, so, that, so they plant, you know, uh, north side, south side, west side, you know, Nineveh church, whatever. You know, he starts uh, doing book deals, and it's great, you know? The end, or not. So now the book continues on and we find ourselves in Act 4 to where he is ticked, right? He is not happy at all. He's not happy that these people got saved, right? You, you think a preacher would be really pumped when 120,000 people get saved. Uh, he's not happy at all, right? Uh, we, we find him in this plate of grace, great anger and great bitterness. And then the final act is where he is outside of the city, bitter, angry, and alone. And so that's what we're going to see today. The most angry and bitter people in the world hate God's plan and love their own. The most bitter and angry people in the world hate God's plan. They don't like the way their life has turned out. They're irritated, they're mad, they're angry, they're frustrated because of their circumstances, because of what's happened to them, because of what went on. They hate God's plan and they really love theirs. That is a bitter, angry person. Maybe you've come here this morning and that's you. They divorced you. They left you. They said this about you. You didn't get the promotion. You lost the job. You lost your house. They died. The doctor says it's cancer. Maybe you came here today and you are so irritated at God's plan and you think to yourself, if God would just, then I would be happy. Then things would work out. What, what's wrong with him? Why isn't he doing the things that I want him to do? Why isn't my plan working out? Why isn't my life going the way I thought it would go? And so bitter and angry people spend the rest of their days talking about what has happened to them. You ever been around that person? Maybe you're that person. I can't believe this happened to me. I can't believe I lost the job. Can't believe she divorced me. Can't believe they said this about me. Can't believe I lost the house. Can't believe this thing didn't work out. I can't believe this happened to me. And listen, all the while, all the while you're missing that it's not about what has happened to you, rather it's about what God wants to do through you. That's what Jonah misses here. He misses that it's not about what's happened to him. Rather, it's about what God wants to do through him. He's chased him with the storm. He chased him with the sailors. He's chased him at every turn because God is trying to do something through Jonah. And all Jonah can see is what God's done to me. And so some of you this morning have walked in here with a sense of anger and bitterness 
at the circumstances in your life and all you can focus on and all you can see and all you can think about is what's happened to you and what God's done to you and what she did to you and what he did to you and what they did to you rather than seeing it, man, this is God doing something because he wants to do something huge through me. That's my whole sermon. So, so if you've got that, if you've got that down pat, <clears throat> you, you can go to sleep, play Angry Birds. Let's look at the text. Verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. <laughs> okay. But what displeased Jonah Look at back at verse 10 in chapter 3. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God spared the city. These people got saved. He preached his eight-word sermon, which was not a very good sermon, not a very powerful sermon, but God used it. People get saved, and he's angry, right? How many of you are looking at an ESV? You're looking at ESV translation. Um, you'll see there, there is a footnote, okay? Look down at the bottom. Look down at the footnote. It says, a Hebrew, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, okay? So if you're not looking at it ESV, there's another way to translate um, this verse here that would say, but it was exceedingly evil to Jonah and he was angry, okay? Jonah is calling or saying or believing or feeling like, God's plan is evil. (laughs) He's accusing God. God, why didn't you do the plan my way? Why didn't things work out the way I wanted them to? He hates God's plan and loves his plan. Therefore, it results in him being angry and bitter. I didn't want these people to get saved. Again, like we've got to ask that question. Why? Like, Why is he so angry and bitter that God spared these people? Because he's self-righteous. He's self-righteous. These people are pagans in Jonah's mind. They deserve to die, right? They're they're evil, they're wicked, they're nasty, mean people, um, and they deserve to die. He he wanted to, uh, you know, sit back at the edge of the city in his nice comfy chair and watch hellfire and brimstone rain down and destroy this city. And if God could have thrown in a plague like right before he destroyed the city, That would have just been icing on the cake for Jonah. Because he believes these people deserve death. They don't have the Bible. They don't have the sacrificial system. They they don't worship the God of the Bible, and therefore, they deserve to die. Now, the other side of that means that Jonah believes that he is good enough for God to love him. If they're evil, so wicked and evil that they deserve God's destruction, Jonah's heart says, I read the Bible. I'm a good person. I'm a prophet of God. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a, right? Therefore, God should love me, right? That this is how religion works. Religion says, I do these things so God will love me and accept me, and I keep doing them so he'll keep loving me and accepting me. The Christian religion says, God already loves me, God already accepts me, so I get to obey out of love for him, not out of duty and obligation. But Jonah believes that he is good enough, 
He's smart enough and doggone it, people like him. So much so that he's earned God's love. So he's mad that God has not obeyed his plan. Again, his plan, uh, destroy Nineveh. Uh, And so God has moved away from what Jonah uh, wanted him to do. Uh, Again, you've got to think about Jonah's mindset is look what God has done to me. Okay, let me explain something about prophets. Here's how you be a good prophet or a, a Old Testament prophet. You would say something that the Lord was going to do, and then that thing actually transpired. When that happened, they would give you the stamp of approval, you're a legit prophet, okay? So the word of the Lord would come to you, right? You you would say, okay, uh, in this amount of time, God's going to do X. And then when X happened, they said, okay, cool, this guy's a prophet of God, right? But what did Jonah say? Yet 40 days and what? Nineveh will be destroyed or Nineveh will be overthrown. Now 40 days is going to go by and Nineveh is not going to be overthrown. So God has just ruined my reputation. Look what God brought about to ruin me and look what God did to me that is now going to remove my status, remove my acceptability in the community. It's going to, I mean, he probably won't get paid anymore. People are going to think that he is a fool. And so he's focusing on, again, what God has done to him rather than what God wanted to do through him. So, he's mad. (laughs) He's angry, okay? Things are not going Jonah's way. Uh, And so, maybe you've come in this morning and that's you. You you walked in here and you're angry and you're bitter because of how things are happening and turning out. Maybe that's not you, but, but let me just make a promise to you. There is coming a day where things are not going to work out. There is coming a day where um, it's just not going to go your way. And the question is, how do, we, how do we trust God's plan? If you want to boil down essentially why Jonah is so angry, why is Jonah so mad? Because he doesn't trust God's plan. He believes his plan was better. These people are evil and wicked. They deserve destruction. Set them on fire, please. Right? That, that's what he wanted. That was his plan, right? But God did not go by his plan. God went by his plan, right? So how do, we, how do we see circumstances unfolding in our life and just believe it's God? Especially when there's pain and suffering involved in it. When things start to fall apart, when there's pain in your life, when there's issue and struggle and strife, how, how can you find uh, the trust in your heart to say, you know what, I believe this is God. God is good, God has a plan, and I'm just going to trust him. Here's another way to ask that question. How do we trust his plan when we cannot trace his hand? That's essentially what Jonah is struggling with here. It's hard for Jonah to trust God's plan because he cannot trace his hand. 
He cannot understand why God would save them. He, he doesn't see the moving pieces. He doesn't understand the moving parts. And so, so many times in our life, all we can see is what's happening right here in front of us. All we can see is that we're going bankrupt. All that we can see is that our marriage is falling apart. All that we can see is that our son or our daughter has gone wayward and way off the wrong path. All that we can see is that I'm lonely. All that we can see is that I hate my job. That's the only part that we can see and we can't find it in our heart to trust God that this is the plan, right? It's like, really God, this is the plan for me? Isn't there something more? So how do we trust God's plan when we cannot trace his hand? Take a look at verse two. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Okay, so all of the implied statements that we've made about Jonah's self-righteousness have just come to bear right here, okay? This is why I ran away because I didn't want you to save them. They're not good enough to be saved. I'm good enough to be saved, okay? But what he does here, this is a quote from Exodus uh, chapter 36, verse 6, and it's also cited multiple times all throughout the Psalms that God is a God slow to anger, rich in love, steadfast, you know, all, all of those things. So he's quoting scripture here. So here's what I want you to see. If you're going to trust God's plan when you can't trace his hand, knowing the word of God is only the beginning. Knowing deep theology isn't the answer to trusting God. It's only the beginning of the equation. Look, th this guy is quoting scripture back to God. This guy probably knows and has memorized the first five books of the Bible. He knows deep theology. He has heard direct words from God. But he still doesn't trust his plan. <laughs> Right? Like, isn't that crazy? This is a prophet. This is a guy who has heard the word of the Lord directly spoken to him. He just preached. 120,000 people got saved, and he still doesn't trust God's plan. Right? So how do we do it? Three ways I want to look at. One, self-examination. How do we... When it seems like things are falling apart, when, when things just aren't adding up, when my circumstances are bearing down on me and I'm saying, God, I don't trust your plan here. One, begin with self-examination. Here's what I mean. If you lose your job and, and you're irritated with God and you're saying, God, I'm, I'm having a hard time trusting your plan here, why are you angry with him? Are you angry because you worship your job and God took away your idol? <laughs> what about, God, I don't understand why my kid is throwing temper tantrums. <laughs> They're embarrassing me. Okay, so are you not trusting God's plan because you want to be seen in the eyes of other people as a good and gracious parent so that they'll pat you on the back and tell you how great a job you're doing? Here's an example. Um, many, many of you guys know uh, Lydia, my daughter, was, uh, she was born early, uh, and so we had to be uh, in the NICU for, for a month. 
Um, and so we were there, and it, I mean, it was relentless. It was day in, day out. We are at the hospital. Um, the, the way it worked is there was only a certain amount of times that, that you could get in to, to see her and, and touch her, and the only times that we got to hold, or, hold her uh, was during those specific times. And so we basically lived at the hospital um, for an entire month. Okay, it, it was a long process, it was, it was grueling, and in the middle of that, I started to get really angry. <laughs> I started to get really bitter, saying, God, wh- why do I have to be here, right? I'm, I'm tired, I, I wanna hold my daughter when I wanna hold her. I wanna play with her when I wanna play with her. I wanna take her home. I want her to be in her crib, in her bed, at our house, God. I don't understand your plan here. Why am I stuck here in this hospital? So I started to do some self-evaluation. Why am I really angry at God? Why am I really not trusting his plan? Why am I really doing these things? Well, uh, because I have control issues. I started to believe that if I was not here to manage the church, if I wasn't here to be its savior, (laughs) if I wasn't here to, to be in control of everything, that the wheels were just gonna come off. Right? That's revealing sin in my heart. Right? The whole thing is when you don't trust God's plan, at the root of it is sin in your life that you need to self examine, work through, and then, which moves me to my second part. So, self examination to prayer. When we can't trust God's plan, when we don't understand what he's doing and how he's working, one, begin with self-examination because the reason you're not trusting God's plan is ultimately sin, which moves us to the second part, which is a prayer of repentance. You know what, God? I'm sorry. I repent of being a control freak. God, I know that if I'm not there as the pastor to manage every little thing that's happening in the church, God, you're sovereign and you're going to handle it. Okay, God, I know that if I lose this job, you're going to take care of me. You're going to have my best interest at heart and in mind. God, you're, you're gonna see me through, God. So, so it begins with self-examination, seeing where you're at fault, seeing your sin, then coming to God in repentance and listen, and then asking God to give you the trust. This is what's so amazing about God. He's a God that will literally, actually, change your heart and your desires. He'll do that. God, give me a heart that trusts this plan. (laughs) It's really scary, right? It it seems like the bridge is out, but this is the direction we're going, so I'm I'm just gonna trust you and just step out there, right? Ask God for a heart that trusts him, right? Uh, Imagine how differently chapter four would go if Jonah would have just stopped and said, you know what, God? I don't know why you saved all these people. I'm gonna trust that this is your plan, and so give me a heart that wants to trust that this is your plan. Thirdly, how do, we, how do we trust God's plan when we cannot trace his hand? Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. Say this. It's not about what happened to me. It's about what God wants to do through me. Right? I, I know that sounds silly, preaching to yourself. <laughs> but, but it's actually biblical and scriptural. Okay? S- say that. Say that out loud. Say it to other people. This is... I don't know what God's doing in my life right now. These are really difficult circumstances, but look, it's not about what's happening to me. It's about what God wants to do through me. And so we were there at the hospital for an entire month 
with my kid and we got to share the Lord with I don't know how many nurses. God was wanting to do something through us. It wasn't, I just can't, I mean, we got a premature baby. You know, this, this just happened to us. No, God was saying, I want to do something through you. I want to start your child's life off with an amazing testimony. I want to give you an opportunity to share your faith and tell other people the gospel, right? It's not what I'm doing to you, Kirk. It's what I want to do through you. I want to teach you long-suffering. I want to teach you that I've got this church. <laughs> that, that was so hard for me to learn, but it took me being away from, you know, like it, it took God snatching me away from this place for a month for God to teach me, I've got this. I, I've got it under control. It's okay, right? That was so hard for me to learn, but God was wanting to do something through me. God was not trying to do something to me. Verse three, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, Jonah. Okay, so, so he's going super melodramatic. He's not trusting God's plan. He, he's angry. He's bitter. He, he said, God, I don't like your plan. I want things to work out the way I want them to work out. And listen, when you hate God's plan and you love your plan, what that ultimately leads to is despair. Leads to despair, right? Again, you've, you've been around these people. You've talked to them that it's always about what's happened to them. It's, all, it's so terrible. I just, I mean, I don't even know why I bother. I might as well just stop even going on, right? It, it, it becomes to where your life spirals into a place of despair, Right? You, you guys have family members this way, that, that it's hard to just sit in a room and talk with them because they're always talking about how terrible things are and they're always talking about you know, the, everything that everybody did to them and they, they just spiral down into this bitter, angry person that is almost unbearable to be around. That, that's what just happened with Jonah. Listen, it doesn't just happen to people, it also happens to marriages. So, so something will happen to a marriage, and, and then that marriage, just the, the husband and the wife just get angry, they get bitter with each other, and they can't see that the circumstance that God is putting their marriage through, God wants to bring something out of. They can't see that. All they can see is that my, my son or my daughter got locked up, or my son or my daughter went wayward, or we lost the house, or we lost the car, or we lost the job. All they can see is the circumstance in the marriage, and then so the husband gets bitter, the wife gets bitter, he gets angry, she gets angry, and the whole thing just goes into a place of despair, Right? So it's not just individual people that, that it happens to, it can also happen to marriages, and it can, all, listen, it can also happen to churches, to where God will um, <laughs> begin to work circumstances in and around a church, and what that church does, instead of seeing that God is trying to do something through us here, it's God has done something to our church, and now, you know, woe is me, you know. People stop coming. The, the people in our church, they just stop giving, right? And, and the church begins to spiral downward into a place of despair to where, listen, three to 4,000 churches this year will close their doors. Can, can I just tell you this? 
God's heart is to see people saved, right? Can you, can you see that in the story here? God's heart is to see lives changed, to see people saved, but so many churches believe, well, nobody's coming, nobody's given, we can't seem to get anybody involved. The church get angry, the church gets bitter, and they won't reach out, they won't change their ways to see lost people saved, and they close their doors because they didn't like God's plan. What's God's plan? To save anybody who'll come. Whether they're black, whether they're white, whether they're smelly, whether they're, right? But so many churches only want to save certain types of people. I, I, the, the church likes to save clean people, nice people. We, we don't want homeless people coming into our church, or we don't want alcoholics in here, or we don't want drug addicts in here. We, we like to save nice people, you know, clean people, people that smile, right? Those type people, the church loves to save, We've forgotten about the homeless. We've forgotten about the drug addict. We've forgotten about the single mom. We've forgotten about these people. And God wants to see those people saved. And listen, if the church in America doesn't wake up to this and change their ways, stop being angry and bitter, right, and see that God is a God who saves, and so we just need to get in on it because he's gonna keep saving people. Um, and so the... It's not just people that can get angry and bitter. Marriages can get angry and bitter. Churches can get angry and bitter and spiral into a place of despair. And so here Jonah doesn't like God's plan, doesn't like what's happening, doesn't like what's going on, and he is in a place of total despair. Now, here's what God is going to do, <laughs> okay? He's gonna give up on him and the book's over. Okay, no, no, he doesn't, God doesn't do that, okay? So, so he pursued him with the storm, he pursued him with the sailor, he pursued him with the great fish, and now God is going to pursue this little rebel one more time. And maybe a time after that, and maybe a time after that. Verse four, listen, verse four gives me such great hope because my heart is often just as rebellious as Jonah. And God keeps chasing, and he keeps pursuing, and he keeps loving. And here's how he does it here. He asks Jonah a question. Remember in the garden, after they sinned, God comes, and what does he do? He asks a question. Adam, where are you? When, when Cain uh, kills his brother, he, he says, what have you done? He asks a question. He comes to Saul and asks a question. He comes to Isaiah and asks a question. Who will go for us? He comes to all types of people in the Bible, and God shows up and he asks a question because, not that he doesn't know the answer, he asks a question because he's trying to reveal something about their heart. So what question does he ask? Check this out, verse four. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? <laughs> right? Hey, Jonah, How's this working out for you, buddy? How's, the, how's this going, right? He, here's essentially what he's saying. Okay, there are two perspectives here. Okay, we're looking at the same situation. What's the situation that both of them are looking at? Nineveh has been spared, okay? So we're looking, Jonah, okay, me and you, we're looking at the same thing. I'm really, really happy that these people got saved. You're really, really irritated. Who do you think's right? 
right? Do you do well to be angry? How's it going for you? How's it working out? Listen, when we get into this rhythm of not trusting God's plan, of looking at our circumstances and saying, woe is me, this is so terrible, look what God is doing to me, when you get in that mindset and that mentality, let me ask you, how does it go for you? I mean, do you wake up in the morning with a pep in your step, right? The birds are singing and you're, you know, no, no, it doesn't go that way. When we distrust God's plan, it doesn't go well for us, right? The, the job that we used to enjoy because we don't trust God's plan, now we hate. The marriage that used to mean so much to us and be so fruitful because we don't trust God's plan, now we can't stand our marriage. The kids whom we used to love to spend time with because we don't trust God's plan, we're irritated at them, Right? That all stems from not trusting God's plan, getting into that place of despair, and then it just doesn't go well. <laughs> it doesn't go well um, for, for Jonah, and he has to acknowledge God for who he is, okay? That, that's the point that I, I want you guys to see. We're, we're talking about just trusting God's plan. Listen, here's why. Because we are his. We, we trust God's plan because we're his, meaning he owns us and the planet, meaning he gets to do with us whatever he likes. He has the right to do so by virtue of being the creator God of the universe, right? So whatever's happening in your life, that's God's plan for you, and he has the right to make it so, so, so I can't, right, get angry. God, I can't believe you left me in the hospital for a month. That was terrible. God has the right to do so because I am his creation. He gets to do with me what he likes. He has the authority and sovereign power to do it. Now listen, and in that, God is bringing about my good and his glory, right? So he has the right to, to do with my life what he wishes and listen, the good news about that is what he wishes is ultimately my good and his glory, which is going to lead to deep joy in my life. And so when we try to fight God's plan, when we try to fight God's circumstances, when we try to fight the way our life is unfolding, you, you're fighting your joy. When you could just say, you know what, God, my life is not mine, my life is yours, uh, you do with it what you wish. I'm going to follow your plan because you're sovereign and you have the right uh, to, to determine my steps. And so I'm going to turn this over to you. And, and listen, when you do that, you, you find a sense um, of joy. Okay, so in the face of this penetrating question, here we go. Jonah's going to repent and the book is going to end with a big party. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, oh Lord, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city, okay? There he is hoping, right? Hoping, wishing, praying, come on, hellfire and brimstone, right? He goes outside of the city. You got to understand this is probably an arid place where there's not a lot of shelter, not a lot of shade. And so he makes for himself a little temporary hut, right? So he goes camping for at least 40 days, we assume, um, to, to see if God will blow this place up, 
right? Burn this thing down. I'm ready. You know, he's sitting there. He's got his little makeshift roofed. You know, he's got his feet propped up. He's got a drink in his hand, and he's just waiting, right? Come on. So problem one, he goes out instead of staying in. Okay. This guy just walked into the city. He said, uh, 40 days, yet the city will be overthrown. Everybody repents and gets saved. Don't you think that at least one person out of 120,000 people would have been eager to host the prophet in their home? Yeah, absolutely, right? Don't you think that at least one person out of the 120,000 would have wanted him to open up the scriptures and walk them through the Old Testament? Don't you think at least one person needed biblical counseling? Don't you think at least one person needed a, a, a word of encouragement? Don't you think at least one person needed some prayer? But instead, he misses what God wanted to do through him. He only sees what God wanted to do to him, and he leaves. He says, forget it. I don't care what God wants to do through me. And he goes outside of the city, abandoning a beautiful ministry opportunity. Flushes it down the toilet. To heck with it. I don't want anything to do with it. I I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be a part of God's plan, right? I think my plan's better, right? He, He totally skipped over what God wanted to do through him, and he goes outside of the city. Problem number two, he tries to provide for himself. When you push away God's plan, you get into a place to where you're forced to begin to make up your own plan and then try to provide for that plan. Here's what I wrote. When we don't trust God's plan, we substitute our own and try to make our own plan happen by providing for ourselves, which leads to disobedience. So he goes outside, outside of God's plan. He should have been inside the city praying for people, biblical counseling, planning a church. Instead, he goes outside of God's plan. He, he walks away from what God wanted him to do. And because he's out there in the middle of nothing, what's he have to do? He's got to provide for himself. He's got to build his own shelter, right? He, he's got to, to do that. Listen, a, a lot of us do that all the time. Okay, l- let me speak to the single people in here you might find yourself in a place of waiting for God to send you a godly spouse, okay? Many of you who are in here are single, you find yourself waiting for God to send you um, that, that godly spouse. But the problem is sometimes we don't like God's plan. We don't like waiting. We feel lonely, and so we want to go outside of that and provide for ourselves by getting a spouse who's not necessarily godly, which leads to disobedience. See how that works? Okay? God's plan, God is saying, just wait. Just wait, single people. Just wait for God to bring someone into your life who is godly. Don't settle for anything less than somebody who loves Jesus. Amen? Don't settle for anything less. And so God might have you in a place of waiting for someone who loves Jesus. Wait there. Don't go outside of the city like Jonah did. Don't go outside of God's plan and try to provide for yourself because you'll get into a relationship that is going to ruin the rest of your life. So wait. Don't go outside the city, right? Married people. You find yourself in a marriage that maybe for the guys you feel like, well, I'm just not getting enough sex. Or for the ladies, I'm not feeling comforted enough. And so instead of waiting and going through with God's plan, you decide to step outside of that and go find more sex or go find more comfort. And you have to provide for yourself, which leads to disobedience. 
We see that play out time and time and time again to where we get tired of waiting for God's plan to unfold, okay? God loves to take his time. Have you read the Bible? <laughs> we get tired of waiting for God's plan to unfold. We decide to pull the ripcord on that thing and go our own way, which leads to disobedience, right? I'm tired of waiting for my finances to come together, so we go outside of God's plan, we don't give to the Lord, we don't give to the church, leads to disobedience, okay? Um, this is exactly what we see happening here time and time again. So God is going to chase Jonah again. Now, he does it in a very, very peculiar way. Uh, this has made tons of theologians, tons of commentary writers really scratch their heads over what's actually happening here. Let's take a look at verses six through eight. This is so incredible. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant. Okay. <laughs> and he made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his dis discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad, right? The first time in the whole book. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. It's like, what? <laughs> right, what, I'm telling you, the end of chapter three should have been the end of this thing, right? Because it just got weird, right? It should have been the whole city repents, you know, the end, right? Instead, we've got this really grumpy prophet who's mad about God's plan, and then he, like, makes a plant grow, and then sends a worm, and the worm eats the plant, and the plant dies, and then there's this wind thing happening, and you're like, what is God doing, right? Like, a worm, really? <laughs> the same thing he was doing when he appointed the storm, and then he appoints a fish. Now he appoints a plant. Then he appoints a worm. Then he appoints a storm. Here's what God is doing, okay? So, so if we can kind of get past all of the worm and the wind, and here's what God is doing, God will use comfort or discomfort to bring you to a place of repentance. God will use comfort or, if necessary, if need be, God will use discomfort to bring you to a place of repentance, okay? Now, we're, we're gonna see how that unfolds uh, in, in the next few verses, in verse nine in particular. But God is doing something. God is working on this rebel's heart He's using these circumstances, okay? He goes outside of the city. Again, how did his little shelter work out for him? Did you see what happened in, in verse six? Now the, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head. I thought he built the shelter. Well, apparently it wasn't working very well uh, because we, again, see, uh, made shade over his head to save him from his discomfort, Okay, so when you go outside of God's plan, you say, forget you, God, I wanna do it my way. You go outside of your plan, or outside of God's plan to your plan, you provide for yourself, okay, it ultimately leads to discomfort. 
That that's where Jonah's at. He's at a place of discomfort because he tried to provide for himself outside of God's plan. So um, God is going to woo him back into a place of repentance, okay? Come back to me, Jonah. So he makes him comfortable, right? Your little shelter deal is not very good. So he creates, raises up this big plant, okay? Uh, most scholars believe it was a castor oil plant. They have like these big giant leaves on them, you know, lots of shade, so he's nice and cool, and he's really happy. The first time in the whole book, he's happy. He loves this plant, right? God, I mean, I'm sure he's just laying there. Thank you, Lord, you're so good and gracious to me, right? He's just, he's so excited about this plant. I mean, have you seen the leaves on this thing? They're gorgeous, right? He's, he's so happy about this plant, and then God says, I'm gonna teach you something. So then the worm comes, and he takes away this gift, this nice comfortability that Jonah had. He takes it away and then adds to the situation by sending a scorch, I'm talking about hot, hot wind onto him to where he's exhausted. Why? What's the deal with this stuff? He's saying, come back to me, Jonah. Come back to me. Don't you see I'm the God who gives great gifts? Don't you see that, right? Come back to me. Here's the problem with Jonah. He loves God's stuff more than he loves God. Listen, Americans who who woke up this morning in an air-conditioned home, who got into a car and drove in your air-conditioned car, and came to a building, and you're sitting in nice, comfy seats in an air-conditioned building, you're probably going to leave here and go to lunch and order too much food, so much so that at the end of your meal, they're going to come and scrape your extra food into the trash and dump out your extra water. You're going to go back to your houses where there are multiple cars, multiple televisions, closets full of clothes and shoes, okay? Listen, God doesn't want your stuff to terminate on you. He wants you to leverage it for him. The problem with so many of us is that we love our stuff. We love our stuff way more than we love God. And when God starts taking away that stuff, we get really angry at him. Verse nine. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry Here we are again, angry enough to die. He loved the plant. Listen, 120,000 people just got saved. What's he happy about? He's happy about the plant. He could care less about the 120,000 people that just got saved. God's heart is people. God loves people. God was trying to teach Jonah through the plant, through the worm, and through the wind that I love seeing people saved. You love your stuff. You love the gifts that I give you. You don't love the gift of salvation like my heart does. That's what he's trying to teach Jonah. Here's a quote from an early church father. Here's what he has to say. In the kingdom of God, we walk on gold and love people. But in the kingdom of man, we walk on people and love gold. That's exactly what happened with Jonah. He was exceedingly happy about the plant. He was so happy. But as soon as God takes it away to try to show him that God's heart is to save lost people, he's mad again and wants to die. You remember the story of the prodigal son? 
that was the, the young guy, he goes to his dad and he says, dad, I want my inheritance right now. And so the dad gives his son his inheritance and he leaves town and he spends all of his dad's money on parties and women and, and, and gets in a really bad way. And then he comes home and what does the dad do? Oh man, he opens up his arms and he embraces him. He puts a ring on his finger, restoring him rightly back to the family. He puts a cloak on him, he puts new, new shoes on him and he throws a party. He kills the fattened calf and they're singing and they're dancing and everyone is rejoicing that this lost son has returned home, right? You remember the other brother? You see, he had stayed, right? He had done the right thing. He had stayed working in his father's field. And as he drew near to the home, he heard the singing and the dancing. And he says, hey, what's up with this? And then a servant tells him, hey, your brother, your brother has returned. And so your father has killed the fattened calf. Isn't, isn't this exciting? Isn't this great news? Here's what it says in Luke. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. And so the father came out to entreat him. And you know what he said to his dad? You never killed the fattened calf for me and my friends. What about the heart of the father? If, if, if the older brother's heart was where the heart of the father was, he wouldn't have been working in the field. He would have been with the father waiting for the lost son to return home. He, he wouldn't have cared about the fatted calf. He would have been the first one in line dancing and, and hugging and singing with his brother, Right? But instead, he loved the stuff instead. Instead of loving lost people, um, Jonah here loved God's stuff. Verse 10 and 11, and I'll be out of your way. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which it came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Okay. Um, how many of you guys, by show of hands, are, are avid uh, novel readers? You love to read novels. Okay, any novel readers? Okay bunch of illiterate people. Very good. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. Okay. Normally, um, at the end of a story, okay, uh, you don't end it with the question and you wrap it up in a really nice way. Okay. That's how a story should end. You know, the end, right? Here's how this one ends. And should I not pity Nineveh, people don't know their right from their left hand and much cattle. Chapter five, anywhere? No, no chapter five, it, ju it just ends like that's it, right? And should I not pity Nineveh? Yes, because the, the people there don't know their right hand from their left hand, meaning they're not able to discern between good and evil, right and wrong. Oh, and there's a bunch of cows there, right? Right, Jonah? Don't forget about the cows, okay? God loves the cows for some reason, like what? What's, what's, okay. So as I, as I meditated on this verse and just thought, I'm like, man, how? Like, really? Did, like, did the Holy Spirit take a day off when he was supposed to be inspiring the end of this book? And then I discovered that there's something monumentally profound um, in the close of this book. He, here is um, what we can see. One, the city repents and Jonah repents. Okay? God is 
relentless about saving lost people. It's going to happen. He wants to see people come to repentance. He wants to restore people back to himself. And so 120,000 people, they didn't know right from wrong. They didn't know good from evil. God brought them to a place of repentance and Jonah came to a place of repentance, right? Did you see that in the text? Yeah, me neither. But listen, we have the book. Think about that. Who wrote the book? Jonah wrote the book. Why in the world, unless you came to a place of repentance, why in the world would you write this way and display yourself in such a light, right? If I were Jonah and I wrote this book, it would be like, and then I strolled into the city and preached a brilliant sermon and everyone was saved, right? Instead, he, Jonah is giving us an honest portrait of himself, right? At every turn, I had to be chased down by God, right? So in the end, Jonah repents and writes this book showing himself in a true light, okay? So we, we see that God is relentless pursuit of his people, listen, and his creation. What's the deal with the cattle? Because God wants to see not just his people restored, but his entire creation restored as well. That's what's up with the, with the cattle. Let me explain that. Here is 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. I'm just gonna read it to you. Here's what it says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be living your lives as holy and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day because of which the heaven, listen, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's 2 Peter 3. Here's what's gonna happen in the end. God comes back and puts his entire creation through a refiner's fire. It, it literally, the heavens and the earth burn with fire. He doesn't destroy it. Listen, he doesn't destroy it so that it disappears. Rather, God puts his creation through the refiner's fire to redeem it. God wants to redeem people and God wants to redeem his creation. In the, you see, I always thought that when we died, uh, we, we went to this place where there's fluffy clouds, uh, we play harps, um, and we wear diapers and look like chubby babies, okay? That, that was my picture of heaven, but that's not it at all. Rather, when God comes back, he redeems his people, giving us all brand new resurrection bodies, and then he puts the heaven and the earth through a refiner's fire, getting out all the impurities, and then we live on the new heaven and the new earth with him, no more shame, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, in his presence with God the King Jesus forever. That's what happens in the end. So God, God wants to redeem people and he wants to redeem his creation. Ultimately, in the end, that's what happens. But what do we do until then? 2 Corinthians 5.18. Here's what it says. He reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So that means that a Christian never has a posture of why polish the brass on a sinking ship? Right? God's going to come back and burn this whole place to bits um, and, and, and essentially put the whole creation through a refiner's fire and make it all new. So let's just sit back and watch it burn. Isn't that Jonah's attitude? 
But because we are reconciled to Christ, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, meaning that we are to implant kingdom DNA into the world around us. Meaning we ask questions like this, what is heaven going to be like? And then we try to make that a reality here. Now, sidebar, that's never going to happen until Jesus comes back and actually does it, but we got to try. We have to implant kingdom DNA here. Here's what that means. Are there going to be battered women in heaven? No, absolutely not. So what do we do? We partner with an organization called Promise Place Fighting Domestic Violence, okay? Um, David Patton will go around and, and he'll fix the city planters and, and plant plants in them to make them beautiful. Why? Because heaven will be beautiful. So, so we try to redeem the creation here today. God wants to see lost people saved and he wants his creation redeemed until he comes and redeems it fully. That's what we're called to do. That's what God wants us to do. So, I want to call us to trust God's plan. What's God's ultimate plan? To save lost people. <laughs> to, to see people saved. To see this church grow and expand. To, to see the city of Fayetteville come to its knees in repentance. And he does all of that through his master plan. You want to talk about trusting God's plan? What's God's master plan? His son Jesus on the cross who was slain before the foundations of the world. And so Jesus on that cross is God's plan. His plan was to come and to save you from yourselves. We, we are wicked sinners. We are great sinners, but we serve a greater God full of hope, full of love, full of joy. And so today, if you're not a believer, I beg and plead with you to trust in God's plan. What's God's plan? His plan was to send his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place for our sins. And what you need to do today is believe on him that he saves, that what Jonah says in Jonah 2, that salvation is of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that people who have come here today angry and bitter like Jonah would leave here joyful, that, that they would realize that your plan is good, your plan is right, that the circumstances in their life do have meaning and purpose and that you will work them out for their good. Father, I pray for the people who are not trusting in your plan that their hearts would change that their lives would change, that they would leave here shedding off bitterness, shedding off anger, that they would leave here feeling, man, like a weight has been taken off of them. Father, I know that my sermon won't do that, but your spirit can. So spirit, come. Change hearts today. I pray that bitterness is left in the aisles today. I pray that anger over what's happened to us in the past is left here today. That there are people here today that are hurting. People here today that feel deep pain and wounds because of what's happened to them. Father, I pray that that gets shedded today, that that is dropped, that that is left here. Leave it in the chair. And that people would see that you're, you didn't do something to them, you're trying to do something through them. And so, Father, help us to see at this church people saved, 
people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and help us to rejoice as a family and as a body. God, we trust your plan. Father, as a church right now, we just, we openly submit ourselves to your plan and what it is that you, whatever you want us to do, God, we'll do it. Whatever direction you want us to go, we'll go. Wherever you tell us to head, we'll head. We trust you, God. We trust your plan, even when we can't trace your hand. We are yours, God. We are your creation. You, you have our good at your heart. And so we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.